This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we travel around the world, Dr Tim Anderson and the destruction of Libya, Nick McCullen and concerns for Pacific nations, Peter Murphy talking about his recent visit to Zimbabwe, and Dr Binoy Campmark, the role Australia played in the coup in Chile 50 years ago. So let's see how far Mr Kevin Healy has travelled in the last week. A week, Jane, listener, when caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer must be so grateful for the solidarity and watertight arguments he's no colleagues proper. First, Jacinta telling us to vote no because there's no cause to vote yes because Terranulius non-land, non-people have suffered not one disadvantage from colonisation, have enjoyed the utopian benefits of running water and food. As we've said, how did they survive those thousands of years without water and food? And then, caring business class Senate aspirant Warren muddying the waters. We presume the former Socialist Party federal president is still in the caring business class party this week. Warren mundying the waters by telling us the disadvantage Jacinta said doesn't exist can only be addressed by voting not to recognise the Terranulius non-land non-people and denying them a voice. Vote no, the road to a treaty with people we don't recognise and don't want to hear. Cheering poor Pete up no end, because a major plank in the no argument, if their obfuscation and confusion could be deemed argument, is a yes vote will lead to unforeseen disasters like a treaty. Could this be yet another case of the right hand not knowing what the right hand is doing? There's always something to upset the poor, caring employers. Great contribution to social cohesion, isn't there? This time, this socialist threat to make wage theft a jailable offence. See, the new law would sit beside, or as caring employers say, overlap a number of state laws, and they're concerned this could mean they would get caught by different laws with different penalties, cop two penalties for the same crime. As Troubler was, he chamber a prophet supremo, Andrew McKillar, the unions. Andrew, a wonderful friend of working people. As Andrew said, employers already face severe challenges managing complex workplace obligations. Poor dears, it's so difficult, isn't it? But we must ask, why are they so worried? Why are caring employers so worried about wage theft, or more correctly, about being sprung for wage theft? After all, they'd only get nabbed anyway if they stole from their workers for wage theft, and we know no caring employer has ever underpaid a worker. Uh, Well, other than OK, OK, there's been quite a bit of inadvertent underpayment, but if they need reassurance, we reckon it's long odds any caring employer ever seeing the inside of a cell. Don't forget those industrial manslaughter laws that also so concerned poor caring employers, and despite lots of death and injury in the workplace, no caring employer has yet got anywhere near a prison cell. Prison cells are for real criminals, not workplace murderers, and not great corporate citizens like our very own big troubler was he, BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter. 
to which I must give a grovelling and sincere apology, because in recent weeks we've been a bit critical of the big true blue Aussie's objections to this same work, same pay legislation, its argument that it will cost it billions. The only logical explanation for that figure, we've argued, is that's what they're underpaying or ripping off workers now. How wrong could we be? It turns out bloody huge P's only concern is workers. As it argued this week, those billions it will have to pay its workforce will reduce the dividends it pays to mums and dads shareholders, to the workers whose super funds are invested in bloody huge. See? Purely altruistic, selfish, selfish, underpaid workers effectively taking the food from the mouths of mums and dads and other workers. It's a disgrace. Our conservative reading of the bill is it will force us to pay cheaper staff hired through subsidiaries the same as other employees. What? Two workers doing the same job, receiving the same pay, and here we thought they were ripping workers off. Their sole concern, those very workers. Two workers side by side doing the same work, but obviously one of them is cheaper. And here's a government, a socialist government, trying to change all that by not recognising that there are cheap people. The big true blue knows that, so sincere apologies for ever suggesting you're ripping workers off. One amendment bloody huge P could agree to would be to reduce the pay of the not-so-cheap, its relative but not-so-cheap worker, to the same work, same pay of the cheaper worker. There, caring employers could agree with that and problem solved. Like New Hope, huge, good, beautiful, don't be afraid of it, coal behemoth. Interesting, New Hope's hope is that coal pollution will last forever, or as long as the earth gasps through that pollution, and the earth hopes coal pollution will cease immediately. Anyway, it also says same work, same pay would be disaster. Quite damaging for the industry, Supremo Rob Bash Up the Planet put it. Interesting opening to that report. New Hope Chief Executive Rob Bash Up the Planet says the Albanese government's same job, same pay agenda threatens to drive the uh, wrong outcomes and stymie investments as he delivered a record profit. Poor Rob, there's always a fly in paradise, isn't there? Assuaged by New Hope made more profit in the past two years than in the previous 16 years combined. Congratulations, and it's investing in more and more coal mines and predicts a great future for coal, if not for the planet. No, no, that's unfair, because all the concerned and responsible fossil behemoths announcing record profits while denouncing any greedy government super-duper obscene profits tax as a crushing disaster are investing in more and more coal and gas and oil, while asserting their commitment to net zero emissions, showing that the miraculous transmission from coal and gas and oil is coal and gas and oil. And if we had just the odd doubt... No, our government also agree as they approve more and more fossils and they too are committed to net zero emissions with a little help from planting a tree or two in Java. From the moment Carlton survived that last minute earning a preliminary final in Brisbane, the airline which used to be our airline discovered, oh goodness, fares to Brisbane are far too low. They need to be several hundreds of dollars higher. 
and the airline which used to be chairperson making life that little bit more difficult, well, several hundred dollars more difficult for footy supporters, and the AFL's chairperson of a board which says it wanted to make getting to the game as easy and inexpensive as possible. The airline which used to be chairperson Richard Goiter, and the AFL chairperson, oh, Richard Goiter. Oh, what a coincidence. Obviously, when it's down to rip-off versus back your supporters, rip-off wins hands down. Nonetheless, AFL CEO Gil McClockdem said, no, no, we do care about those supporters, but Richard's role at the airline, which used to be, is different to Richard's role at the AFL, <laughs> as if we hadn't noticed. Richard did pick up the Modesty of the Week award when an ABC interviewer popped a few questions about the odd scandal at the airline, which used to be, and loud calls for Richard to resign. He had wide support to stay and get the job done, he assured us, whatever the job is. One problem, the 1,683 workers who don't have a job. And then, true modesty, I am the best person for the role. Which, if true, speaks wonders for the pool of capitalist executive talent. There's no one better. Oh, and Richard said he couldn't comment on matters before the courts. Other than... The airline which used to be never, never charged exorbitant fares for no service. A matter I had thought was before the courts, but Richard would never mislead us. So when people were charged the exorbitant fare, they would have paid a service fee of sorts. And being charged was a service, so they received a service. It's just that the airline which used to had not the slightest intention of flying them anywhere to a man whose intentions have been very clear for decades. So, Lord Rupert of Wapping has stepped aside from chair to chair emeritus of Newsbury Limited and Facts Distorted, replaced by his scion Lockie. Won't that make a difference? Think we'll leave our opinion of Lord Rupert until he drops off this mortal, given the severe limitations of our defamation laws, other than to say, however many decades it is, the world would be a better place if he'd retired that many decades ago. Still, finally, the value of um, Newsbury Limited and the other news media was proven down at the high-rise public housing towers this week when residents were able to read and hear that their homes were about to be demolished, saving the government having to deliver the news. But sadly, that fly-in-paradise metaphor applies again, as the parallel announcement of thousands of new government-funded homes had one real estate agent, that most prestigious and admired of professions, Barry Plant the Prophets, lamenting the proposal. Could flood some areas with housing supply and dampen capital gains and investment returns. Oh, God, how awful. If it's any consolation, we can assure Barry in the end there won't be one publicly funded residence that is actually public housing. Hope that makes him feel so much better. Good afternoon. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, Driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
the headlines read, The failure behind the deadly flooding in Libya. The storm and accompanying floods this week that have killed thousands in Libya was a natural disaster, likely compounded by climate change. But the magnitude of the loss in Libya is inherently political. The failure of a divided, corrupt and autocratic government of the past decade that was hastily built around Colonel Gaddafi's decentralised state and has been impeded by civil war. But today, with the help of Dr Tim Anderson, we're going to look behind those headlines and the blaming to understand the Libya that was sacrificed for US imperialism. The millions who have paid the price, not only in Libya, but neighbouring countries to the south and the west. Tim, how far back in Libyan history do we need to go for an understanding of the country we know as Libya? Well, I suppose the, the, the stable government um, under Gaddafi was there since the 70s, basically, and it was something that the, um, the Western states didn't like because it was an independent state, and that's why eventually they saw a chance to overthrow it and murder Gaddafi in 2011. And uh, so with that background, and with the background that under Gaddafi in Libya, there were probably the highest living standards in Africa, and possibly the highest status of women in Africa, for example, and that's what Obama and NATO destroyed, basically. And this uh, recent the storm and the the bursting of the dams, which hadn't been maintained for many many, is one of the one of the terrible consequences that Libyan people have been experiencing ever since then, since 2011. Just to go back before Gaddafi, what was Libya like over those years and the the interference of colonisation? So there was a um, there was a monarchy there. It had been colonised by Italy at one stage. And in fact, unusually, um, Libya was one of the few countries where there was actually a compensation paid by Italian government under Berlusconi for the colonial period. It was a relatively short colonial period compared to the French and British colonies, but there had been uh, this Italian colonisation. There was a type of a settlement with Berlusconi and Gaddafi before NATO destroyed the country. And when Gaddafi came to power, was it a bloodless coup or not? Relatively, relatively bloodless. Yeah, it was. It was similar to Egypt in a way, you know, with the the young officers, um, as in Nasser, Nasser and his colleagues in in Egypt. So um, Gaddafi came from the military, and it was relatively, relatively bloodless. Did he have mentors or people he looked up to in other countries that he was going to emulate? I think in some ways, you know, he, he looked up to NASA. Of course, the whole Arab world looked up to NASA, particularly when NASA took on the French and the British in the 50s. So that was, NASA was one influence on him. Of course, he developed his own style, his own cult in a way, but nevertheless, it was something that really was of great benefit to the Libyan people. Most oil-rich countries, ordinary people don't benefit in oil-rich countries because there's a, a big crowd of, of thieves come in and start dividing up the spoils and really there there isn't a decent trickle-down in most oil-rich countries. You look at Saudi Arabia today and so on. But in Libya, it was. You know, there were real benefits for ordinary people in Libya from, from the oil. When you came to power, the oil industry was already well-developed. It was it was developed, and of course the the power of of oil was going to increase through the 70s because when the cartel was formed, 
uh, you know, the OPEC cartel, then at that stage, then the oil producers, particularly the Arab oil producers, realised that they could get a better deal out of the rich countries that were getting their, their resource, resources cheap. So, of course, that was a, a source of aggravation to the, the G7 NATO countries. But nevertheless, that OPEC cartel weaponised the oil in, in a sense that they could, you know, crank up the prices. And, of course, there were bad consequences for countries who had who were big oil importers, but nevertheless it meant that some of those Arab oil exporters became very wealthy. The question of what they did with it is another, a separate question. Well, from that base of a coup, what was mm. their plan? Was there a plan? Yes, there was a plan to, to build a nation that had some dignity where people, for example, had their own homes where they could afford a, a, a get a decent education, um, and, and those things were put in place. You know, families had credit, they had access to getting their own homes, to having decent social services, to having decent education. That was, you know, the oil was used for broad social purposes. I've read that there was Sharia law. Is that right? Well, anything in, in an Islamic culture, you can call Sharia law, but it wasn't a cruel or brutal system, basically. I don't think it's correct to say that there was a... A, a brutal form of religious law in, in, in Libya. It's not known for the extremism. The extremism really came in 2011 when the the uh, attacks on the government in Benghazi started. That was the introduction of the Al Qaeda, ISIS extremist extremism there. And of course, it was fomented by the US and by Britain. You, you, we see we have these pictures of the late Senator John McCain and Lindsey Graham and one of their colleagues going and giving awards, presenting awards to the leader of the Libyan Islamic fighting group, which was really the, the franchise of ISIS in Libya. That only happened because it was sponsored by the wealthy states that found Libya to be as an independent state, which didn't join the arrogant AFRICOM designation. You know, the AFRICOM is the, the branch of the Pentagon military that pretends to control all of Africa, basically. They weren't part of those sorts of plans. They were Libya under Gaddafi was focused on trying to build ways to enhance African unity, to have a, a stronger voice of, of African countries in the world, and that was resented by the by the Pentagon, by the by Washington. And it wasn't just oil that was important to him; it was water as well. Yes, that's true. That's true. Of course, in in the the north in the North African area, in the uh, in and around the Sahara area, the, the whole question of the use of underground water has been a very important thing, and um, the exploitation of underground water, the um, even the building of the dams, the two dams that just broke in uh, eastern Libya. Now, um, those things were they were created. I think some um, uh, Yugoslav uh, contractors built those dams, that, the ones that just broke. But um, so anyway, the the, the point is. Yes, you're right that the, the management of water in, a, in an arid area was something that Libya was pioneering and trying to turn to the advantage of the Libyan people. And pipelines and, and more pipelines? Yes, that was, that was part of it, of course, that the, 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 this, um, the use of, of underground water reserves, huge underground water reserves was part of that large plan that was being invested in. But all that, when, when the government was destroyed... Um, by Obama and, and Sarkozy and the others because they, they wanted to destroy Libya, they wanted to get their hands on the oil. All of that investment, all of the 
the process of large-scale investments in infrastructure all came to a ground to a halt. But even before that, you talked about the, the, his engagement with African countries. He was very important mm. in supporting the people of the countries to the south, the east and the west of, of Libya. Yes, that's true. Uh, that's true. And you, you will hear leaders in many of those African countries saying that he was a very important factor in um, supporting the neighbouring countries in also trying to empower the organisation of African unity and um, supporting where he could the, the federation of efforts in terms of African countries to lift the, the standards in those countries. So he was, a, he was an ally in many respects to those countries which are now rebelling uh, in the Sahel region against the, the French neocolonial rule. And he allowed many workers from those countries to come in and work in Libya? That's true, and also, of course, that was used against him when the when the all of the stories, all of the false stories of 2011 about how he was killing his own people, and this was a rebellion on the streets that they were Salafists, they were extremists, and they used, for example, the fact that there were black Africans working in the country to claim that he was using uh, black African mercenaries to repress the Libyan people. That was entirely false, and. It's been admitted by many North American sources it was false, but it was one of the things that the, the NATO countries were trying to use against Gaddafi to to smear him uh, in, in the process of murdering him and destroying his government. And what other re things were they using in that build-up to 2011? Well, one of the things that's worth remembering is that um, it happened very quickly um, in 2011, really. You know, there wasn't... A long build-up. Similar with Syria, you don't find in 2010 there wasn't a propaganda war. But with Libya, it happened very quickly, and it was uh, they destroyed Libya very quickly, which I think is the advantage of that type of propaganda. If you can say all these sorts of things about Gaddafi, that for example, and repeated by Amnesty International, I might add, Amnesty International in France, which later admitted that they were spreading those false rumours. For example, that black African mercenaries were being used to repress people. The, the, the amnesty repeated those things. And then, as they had done previously with, with Iraq and Kuwait, they spread those sorts of stories and then they renounced them later on. Another one was that the army was being fed Viagra to rape women. Now, amnesty spread that story and then they came out later on and said, no, there was no evidence for that. But nevertheless, amnesty has participated in these sorts of campaigns. And the problem is, in the early time of that sort of regime change war or hybrid war, if you like, um, that sort of propaganda makes a difference because in the case of Libya, they got this UN Security Council resolution 1973, which was supposedly about a, um, a no-fly zone to protect civilians from their own government based on entirely false pretext. But it was that was, of course, the, the thin end of the wedge that NATO used to go and bomb the country and ensure that they destroyed the state, they destroyed the infrastructure, they destroyed the capacity of the, the state regrouping to look after that sort of infrastructure and present the, uh, prevent the sort of uh, tragedies that we saw just recently with, the, with this Mediterranean storm destroying the dams that, in the east that hadn't been maintained for, for many, many years. When you say destroyed Libya, does that mean that NATO troops stayed in Libya? No, the, the NATO was mainly involved in bombing. Um, there were some covert operations, for example, in the tracking down and murder of Gaddafi that they were involved in, but basically they had their proxies on the ground. They had the, 
the ISIS um, franchise there, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, and uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that guy Belhaj, who was awarded by the U.S. senators for his great work in what do they call it, liberating Libya or whatever. So NATO didn't use um, the troops on the ground in that sense. That the French, along with the U.S., uh, were involved in intelligence support, aerial bombing. And, uh, and of course, that meant bombing infrastructure as well. Um, you know, the, the major cities were damaged very badly. Uh, that means the population was deprived of normal infrastructure and services for that time. But in the nature of hybrid wars, particularly run by the liberal side of imperial politics these days, like in that case, it was the Obama administration, for example, they'd rather prefer to have proxy armies to use other groups on the ground, um, in particular these... Um, extremist sectarian groups that they've used, not just in Iraq and Syria and Libya, um, but also now, of course, it's emerging now that the, the West African countries, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, are all now blaming the NATO states for introducing and fomenting and supplying these other groups called Boko Haram and Shabab, for example, in, nor in Northern Africa. They're really the same sort of character as ISIS and, and Jabhat al-Nusra and HDS in in Iraq and Syria, for example. So those proxies are things specifically created for a purpose. Well, after the capture of and execution of Gaddafi, what happened to his troops, his, his people, the people who supported him? Well, they were fragmented. They were, they were hunted down. They were persecuted. Many of them were killed and jailed. His son was jailed. There was a, a full-scale repression of anyone who supported the uh, the government before that for that time and then as we've seen the attempts to reconstruct some sort of government in the country there's two basic types of government so the country's split in a way and they're sponsored by different um, countries so Turkey is sponsoring one Muslim Brotherhood faction Egypt is very anti Muslim Brotherhood is sponsoring another one and uh, and so on you know France is sponsoring another one. So you've got all these outside players trying to get a, a government that, with which they can have more friendly relations with. You know, But of course, they went in for the kill when, in, back in 2011 when they, when they completely destroyed not just the government but the state and um, uh, wanted their own oil companies, for example, in there, but also wanted their own uh, proxy militia. Interesting to repeat the jubilation of Clinton what had happened? Oh, that was a horrific thing, wasn't it? Just a, even if you took the politics out of it, what a what a horrific thing to have this person, a high-profile U.S. politician, to be gloating over what was a horrific public murder of this man. You know, they, I think they, you know, they used they murdered him with knives. They they tortured him before they murdered him. It was in public, and Hillary Clinton was then gloating and clapping her hands and laughing. As, and, and pretending that she was some sort of observer, they went in. She said, "What we came, we saw he died." In other words, we were there. We went in there, but he died as if it wasn't um, at the hands of U.S. Um, military and, and NATO military. You're listening to an interview with Dr. Tim Anderson about the situation in Libya today. What happened to the workers from the southern countries? who'd been there, were they sent back? They suffered uh, tremendous persecution too. I think actually Amnesty, try, Amnesty International trying to 
resurrect their credibility over this, having supported the Warper propaganda, then came in and, and started to blame the the, the so-called rebels, you know, the NATO-backed rebels, for discriminating against, persecuting, attacking black Africans who were in, in Libya. Of course, you've got Arab-looking North Africans and you've got uh, a number of uh, black Africans who were who were there as workers, as you mentioned there. So there was a, a persecution there. There was also, incredibly, the, the reconstruction of actual slave markets, actually selling individuals as slaves at that time, one of the most spectacular, horrific things about the, the destruction of the Libyan state was that open-air slave markets were reconstructed in Libya for these new factions to do what they would with the people who they identified as working for and being allied with the, the, the previous government, the Gaddafi government. Who got control of the oil? Well, Sarkozy, the, the then French president, was boasting that he wanted a third of, of Libyan oil. They wanted a cut. Uh, the NATO states wanted a cut there. Of course, they were using their private companies to go in and, and extract it, but that all depended on their relationships with the new uh, military factions who were who were involved there. You know, so as I said, that's why you have such a fragmentation of the the administration in Libya these days. Really, two blocks, but they're all they have their all their foreign sponsors, and not all the foreign sponsors want oil. Some of them have got Russia's one of the. It's got its hand in there, but Russia doesn't need any oil. It's a huge country with its own oil and gas and so on. But, but some of the others, uh, particularly the Europeans, of course, want their well, oil is important to them. I think in terms from the US, the important thing really was the destruction of a, a non-embedded state. In other words, um, there there is this one of these doctrines in the Pentagon is to destroy disconnectedness, which is, means to say is that we they can't tolerate strategically to have an independent player, whatever sort of player that independent player is there. So there, strategically, the U.S. was not really concerned so much about stealing the oil from Libya as simply destroying an independent state, which was going to be a bad example and a bad agent in the, in the region, which they pretend to control through their, their AFRICOM military. What happened to the sovereign wealth money? I believe that it was under UN sanctions, $67 billion dollars. In 2012, where did that go? I, I can't answer that. I don't know the answer to that one. Of course, you, you wouldn't be surprised to, to read that it was stolen, sacked in some sort of way. Um, the the US and its um, cohorts don't really believe in these sorts of things. Sovereign wealth funds, they're, they're seen as some sort of covert communism. They, they believe in, in all of these monies being in private hands, basically. But I can't tell you exactly what happened to Libya's sovereign wealth fund. What about the the water projects that he had? Did they just fade away? Yeah, the, the projects were really effectively abandoned. And um, as this recent disaster tells us, even the simple fact of the need to maintain these sorts of dams, you've got two big dams sitting above the city, this coastal city, and you need to maintain these sorts of things. They don't just, if, if there isn't maintenance, these things fall apart. They don't just sit there forever, basically. So... Ever since um, the, you know, in the last decade, there simply was not maintenance on those things. So therefore, of course, the investment in the new infrastructure that you were talking about, the new channels, the, the new ways of trying to exploit in some form the subterranean water reserves, you know, the big groundwater that exists there, that investment hasn't hasn't happened in, in more than a decade now. There's simply all of that stuff has ground to a halt. 
And you talked about the investment of Gaddafi in health, education, housing. What's the situation yeah. there now? The same thing. It's it's fallen apart, you know, and, and there's squabbling groups fighting over control of state assets. But you, you need political will to, even in a wealthy country, you need political will to set up and to maintain public health systems, public education systems. You know, if you don't have a... And you need a state to do that, to express that political will. Basically, if those if those institutions are blown apart, then of course um, the public health system is going to suffer. Can I go back to the impact of Gaddafi's death, his removal from power? What sort mm. of an impact did that have on those neighbouring countries? Apart from the fact that there were workers in Libya, how did they cope with? Libya going like that, were they fearful that they were going to get the same treatment in some ways? Well, yes. Um, of course, even big neighbour in Egypt, um, it, which is, um, you, you'd know that the current um, military president there, Sisi, really came back to power, sort of reverting to a status quo really after a brief period when there was a Muslim Brotherhood government there, you know, after a, they were the, the least unliked candidate in, in the elections when after Mubarak was overthrown. So the Egyptian government really has a great fear of and has always suppressed the Muslim Brotherhood because it's been a, a conspiracy of Muslim businessmen to try and have their own the secret society where they, they are involved in assassinations and coups and so on. They have that history in Egypt and in Syria. And so there's one thing that the Syrian government and the Egyptian government share, even if they're quite different in other respects, is that they they have banned the Muslim Brotherhood for all those sorts of reasons. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood and the um, its sponsors like Turkey and Qatar are involved in Libya right now, basically. And of course, Qatar back in the day in 2011 was one of the, and its, its main news agency, Al Jazeera, was one of the main propagandists in Libya, spreading these rumours about Gaddafi killing his own people and so on, all the, the rumours that have been admitted as false by many of the many of the US journals these days. Al Jazeera was also in Egypt, um, also carrying out those sorts of campaigns. So the Egyptian government, the Egyptian regime is very wary and of course they have their proxies, if you like, in Libya to ensure that there isn't a Muslim Brotherhood regime that comes back into Libya and, and affects Egypt. Now as I mentioned earlier, the, the Sahel countries, some of the landlocked countries like Mali, they've been facing this um, terrorism for the last decade or so. And it's a, entirely a parallel process to the ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra and HTS terrorism in, in West Asia, in the Levant, in Iraq and Syria, for example. Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab on the, on the eastern side there. They are very similar Salafi sectarian groups which are funded by Saudi Arabia in many respects, probably by Qatar also. And they've been fighting them for a number of years. And, of course, this is one of the reasons why France still has troops on the ground in Niger, for example, because the pretext was, we'll, we'll come here to help fight terrorism. Our, our mission is, as the US said, to fight terrorism anywhere in the world. So the US and France send their troops there supposedly to help these countries deal with a terrorist threat. But then after a while, countries with a bit of... Um, a conscience like in or a military with a bit of a conscience like in Niger and Burkina Faso and, and, and Mali, they come to realize that these terrorist groups are actually being protected 
and supplied by the the NATO regimes that are there. It's a protection racket. You know, they they create this in groups like ISIS, and then they say, okay, we'll come we'll come back to Iraq. We'll occupy Iraq again to fight ISIS, and then of course they discover that of course they're, they're doing no such thing. We know that in Syria, for example, the U.S. Air Force and the Australian Air Force um, just seven years ago killed 120 Syrian soldiers to allow ISIS to take over the mountain behind Deir Ezzur airport. And that was not reported by any media in this country. I wrote a, a long research article. There was a, a short documentary I did with some Syrian friends on it. So in other words, the direct support for those terrorist groups to destabilize Iraq and Syria, that same technique has been used in the Sahel countries against um, Libya's neighbors, if you like, Mali, Burkina Faso and so on. That's an additional factor there that the the, the presence of NATO forces is really, uh, and why it's why it's resented now, and why these military coups, um, which are in some cases turning into revolutions, really with a lot of popular support, are uh, very upset with the fact that France and the US have been there, pretending to fight terrorism and actually fomenting it, which is, of course. The effect of that terrorism is to weaken and, and destabilise these states and not allow them to develop normally. That's the aim. I mean, they don't want Burkina Faso to be a an independent country like like Libya was, for example. They don't want those independent states there. They want them to be integrated under their umbrella, under their patronage, part of for the Pentagon organised AFRICOM, and then doing what the the US and NATO states want with their resources. Just to go back to Gaddafi for a moment, the Goldina, mm. the threat to yeah. the US dollar, how significant was that? There's a lot of debate about exactly how significant it was. It was certainly an important factor in Gaddafi being outside the US strategy for the reason and Gaddafi supporting African Union initiatives. And of course, it's one of the famous initiatives that didn't really, didn't really get there, but nevertheless is still brewing under the, the new ages of, of BRICS in Africa now and the, the increasing African representation in BRICS, where in BRICS it's openly being said that they, are, they want to displace the dominance or the, the dictatorship of the US dollar, which allows the US to impose these unilateral sanctions or siege measures on, on countries that, that uh, mispaid according to US rules there. So certainly a, a gold-backed African currency would have been one thing that would have undermined the U.S. role there. And now we see that with um, with BRICS, they're talking about not necessarily immediately a gold-backed currency, but it could come to that. But in the meantime, they're doing bilateral swaps, having a basket of currency, using other currencies, getting away from this dependence on the U.S. dollar for trade between themselves, because the U.S. dollar for many decades has the dominance of the US dollar in international trade has damaged the capacity of ordinary independent states to carry out normal trade and avoid inflation, not to, um, they, they are really, even if they're not the subject of direct US unilateral sanctions, it still hurts the economies of many of these developing countries. So Gaddafi was, of course, had one such initiative, which was not necessarily aimed at the US, but it was certainly aimed at the independence of African countries and having, you know, being able to trade with each other on a more equitable basis and not have everything, everything passing through US dollar. And of course, in recent years, the number of people who have died in the Mediterranean 
fleeing not only Libya but the the poverty and the wreckage of the countries to the south, much of that can be sheeted home to the destruction of Libya. Yes, the destruction of Libya is an important part of that, but then also we should remember it's also what these West African revolutionary regimes are talking about, that it's the exploitation of their reserves, the extraction of gold, uranium, uh, all sorts of things, including energy. Now, you know, there's a another energy pipeline, a gas pipeline being spoken of from Western Africa to Europe. Um, those things being extracted at very cheap prices and the, the, the development, the industrialization of their own capacities, which is turning around now because the growth, the economic growth in, in Africa is second only to China in the world now, but they are alive to the fact that the, the extraction of their resources at bargain prices has really been enforced by these um, NATO powers who got their military there to try and prevent what's exactly what's happening now, the rise of independent political will and uh, a desire to actually defend their own economies and develop their own economies with new partners, including China and Russia, for example, but also to just simply to have normal relationships amongst themselves and not have everything mediated by by France. France, of course, has its own currency in West Africa where all the reserves are held in the French Central Bank, and then there's the US dollar. So they're trying to get out of that trap. Well, finally, Tim, how can the Sahel countries help the people of Libya? Well, the, it's, it's going to be a long road. I mean, one of the most successful, from the point of view of imperialism interventions in, in recent years has been Libya. You know, they, they didn't succeed in Afghanistan. They didn't succeed. They're not succeeding in Iraq. They didn't succeed in Syria except by hurting people. But in Libya, really, they, they thoroughly destroyed the state there. They destroyed the political will that Gaddafi had built up, the institutions he'd built up, even the, you know, the, the, the very infrastructure that protected people and, and helped people there. That's a long road. But now we're seeing some interesting countercurrents, aren't we, that the, the Sahel countries have already formed a military alliance, a mutual assistance alliance, given that there's a threat of invasion of Niger from the collaborating states, including the, the Nigerian regime, which is the large, the largest of those, but there's discontent in, in Nigeria as well. So in the face of all of that, you've got this military alliance between Burkina Faso, Mali and, and Niger, and that's for their own protection in this, in this transitional period. And of course, they would prefer to have a, an independent partner in Libya with which they could deal and, and, and relate, but at the moment, there's still all the, all the squabbling foreign groups that are trying to get control of Libya. As I said, uh, Egypt's got a hand, Russia's got a hand there, but you've got Turkey, you've got Qatar, you've got the French, you've got the US. So there's, it's really a very difficult climate for some genuinely independent political project to arise in Libya. It's been so thoroughly dismantled and damaged. Are your final words? Well, I'd like to be able to say something more hopeful, but it's an extremely difficult situation. You see the struggle that Iraq has, it's simply trying to develop a, an independent um, state. You know, in Baghdad, the, the political will is very weak. There's a lot of divisions that, which are worked on by the US, by the Saudis and so on. So it, it, it's hard to say things that are too hopeful about Syria. Ideally, we'd like to see an independent will re-arise in Libya and, and it share some common purpose with its neighbours to have good relationships with Egypt have good relationships with the Sahel countries, you know, but it's going to be a long road, I believe. 
Thank you, Tim. You're welcome, Jan. I've been speaking with former academic and writer, Dr. Tim Anderson. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Today, the main topic for discussion with Nick McClellan, correspondent with Ireland's Business Online, is the US in the Pacific. First, Nick, the fear that China is increasing its influence amongst Pacific nations. One way the US tries to counter that is to install new embassies. July 2022, Vice President Kamala Harris announced two new embassies in the Pacific. Are they there? The US Embassy in Nukulofa, the capital of Tonga, was opened earlier this year by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. The US has also opened an embassy in uh, Solomon Islands because of particular US concern over the uh, 2022 uh, Solomon's-China Security Treaty. They're also proposing Kiribati, as you say, and uh, Vanuatu, but um, work's underway, but they haven't quite got off the ground yet and uh, aren't officially open. The US is seeking to expand its diplomatic footprint in the Pacific Islands. Part of the problem is that that's driven by concern about Chinese influence or perceived Chinese influence, rather than fully addressing the priority concerns of uh, Forum Island countries. And as we've discussed many times on this program, you know, the central concern is climate change. So there's a real tension in US policy, as frankly with Australia, um, how much is their engagement with the region driven by the geopolitical concern and competition with China, and how much is it addressing the the Forum Island Country's agenda around climate change and uh, loss and damage, oceans, fisheries, human development for some of the poorest countries in the world. There's a real tension there. Unfortunately, the evidence is that the the geopolitics of um, uh, containing China is uh, much more influential in setting policy. What happens in an embassy, Nick? Some of these embassies are pretty small, too, by US standards. Um, you know, with the Solomon Islands embassy, initially they only had a couple of Americans come, as well as some locally hired staff. Embassies uh, provide cover for spies. They host um, uh, officials of the USAID, the Agency for International Development, which is the uh, aid arm of, uh, you know, overseas development assistance arm of the United States. And indeed, um, Samantha Power came and opened the, uh, a new USAID office in Fiji. 
you know, the, the US influence in the region was very strong in the 1980s, concerned about the Russians. Then it faded away for a long time. And now the, the US is slowly, slowly putting in building blocks to establish their diplomatic footprint across the region once again. And what about China? What have they got? Well, China's, uh, you know, more active in um, diplomatic sense. They've got a number of embassies around the region, uh, particularly in Port Moresby, in uh, Papua New Guinea, in Suva, Fiji, and in other places. But much of Chinese influence comes not through government officials, but through uh, Chinese corporations. There are a number of state-owned enterprises, uh, indeed uh, Chinese uh, private companies, as such as they exist, that are operating across the region. And in some ways, they serve a more diplomatic role. You know, state-owned enterprises, as the name suggests, are very much tied to the Chinese state, but they have their own management systems. And uh, you'll find in uh, a number of countries that the staff of uh, Chinese Railway Corporation, uh, which is very active in the region, there are other companies involved in road building in countries like uh, Fiji and uh, Vanuatu. Um, you know, these uh, state-owned enterprises are, in fact, often the public face of China's role within the region as much as uh, Chinese diplomats. But um, a number of countries are appointing special envoys to liaise with the Pacific Islands Forum and other regional organisations. China appointed a, a diplomat, uh, Tianbo, uh, last year uh, to serve as a regional envoy. The United States uh, appointed uh, in 2022 Ambassador uh, Frankie Reed. Uh, Frankie Reed's a US diplomat who previously served as a US ambassador in Fiji, and now she serves this role as a regional envoy, sort of roving ambassador around the region. Indeed, Australia's done the same thing. Uh, Ewan MacDonald, along serving a AusAid and then DFAT official, was head of the office of the Pacific in Canberra after it was created, and is now based in, uh, in uh, Suva, Fiji, as the High Commissioner in Fiji, but also as the special envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum. You have China, the United States, um, uh, France has a, a special envoy as well for the region, the European Union. There's a lot more focus and many players trying to woo Pacific Island countries. Uh, that's creating a, a, a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of problems, because um, often the geopolitical agendas of all these players override the concerns of priorities of ordinary people across the Pacific. That's what I was going to ask you. What do the people of the Pacific get out of all these embassies for the different countries? Well, they get a lot of promises. <laughs> and the challenge, as always, is how to trans translate political promises and pledges that come from summits and meetings and uh, annual communiques and so on into action on the ground. You know, one of the notable things about the United States is they talk a lot but the delivery is uh, hamstrung by the ongoing tensions and dysfunction that you see in the U.S. Congress. In the uh, midterm elections uh, for the U.S. House and Senate, um, the Republican Party gained control very narrowly of the House of Representatives. The Democratic Party under Joe Biden has uh, a narrow majority in the Senate, but the House is hamstrung. And indeed, there's a so-called Freedom Caucus within the Republican Party that is full of mad dogs, not to put too fine a point on it, people who are climate deniers, uh, uh, homophobic, anti-abortion. They're about to bring the US government to a standstill um, by uh, refusing to pass budgetary bills. You know, there's likely in the next couple of weeks to be a, a, a real crisis in, in the Congress. 
the budget bills are supposed to be passed by the end of September, one of the big concerns that comes from uh, many Pacific Island governments is that they welcome uh, US pledges of support. And we saw that this time last year, Joe Biden hosted the inaugural White House Summit for Pacific Island leaders. He's just doing the same thing this week uh, in uh, Washington to host uh, Forum Island leaders who've been in in the United States for the opening of the UN General Assembly. Um, They're having a stopover in the White House. There's lots of pledges, but when you look at the track record, the dysfunction in the US Congress means Biden can't actually deliver on promises that he's made in recent years. What about China? What pledges of support do they make and do they keep them? China also makes a lot of pledges. Um, There's a major statement issued in 2022. Chinese foreign minister at the time, Wang Yi, was touring the region. He did an eight-country tour in mid-2022, and it caused quite a stir. The big highlight of that was the formal signing of the uh, China-Solomon Islands uh, Treaty in April, Security Treaty. And Wang Yi, during his eight-country tour around the region, signed 54 bilateral agreements on a whole range of issues. Um, China has the advantage that if the Communist Party decides something, they don't have to have, go through the budget reconciliation that the US Senate and House of, Represents, House of Representatives goes through. But China's money flowing to the Pacific is dropping substantially from the peak of 2016. Um, you know, the Chinese economy is in serious trouble as well. China has made a series of pledges, but many of them uh, um, have faltered, and Chinese aid and direct uh, investment in the region has dropped substantially from the peak of 2016 with the Belt and Road Initiative and other Chinese uh, influence in the region. What about climate adaptation promises for the Pacific? Are they part of China? Yeah, China's made pledges and China set up a a China-Pacific Islands climate centre in uh, Shandong province. You know, this is a big problem though, that the, the pledges of climate finance by all major powers are just not being met. And that's particularly stark with the Biden administration. 2021, there was a climate, global climate action summit and Biden pledged to double Australia's, uh, sorry, America's um, public climate finance to developing countries. So this is money to be given for adaptation to the adverse effects of climate change, um, climate finance for mitigation, making the transition to renewable energy. And he said in 2021, just a couple of years ago, that they would triple the amount for climate adaptation by 2024. Now, last time I looked at the calendar, that's next year. So in 2021, he pledged that they'd be more than 11 billion US dollars annually for climate finance, public climate finance. Well, in last year's budget, there was less than 1 billion, 987 million to be precise. So he pledged 11 billion, delivered less than 1 billion last year. And in the current budget that's currently before, you know, battling between the Senate and the House versions uh, in the US Congress as we speak, soon to be finalised, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives says that there will be no money for the Green Climate Fund, that there will be no money for the Clean Technology Fund. The House version of the budget bills has no allocation for bilateral funding of adaptation, for sustainable landscapes, for clean energy programs. I mean, the House is controlled by maniacs. Um, and Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, can't control the so-called Freedom Caucus, but they're very clear that there'll be no money for climate. Now, so Biden's made a series of pledges. We'll see uh, in coming weeks how much he can deliver and sign into law. And that's pretty stark in, in all sorts of areas. 
you know, both the US House and the US Senate have proposed funding bills for fiscal year 2024. But both of them, not just the Republican House, but also the Senate, proposed cuts to development assistance funding, so overseas aid, both compared to what they gave last year and what Biden's asked for in the budget. The House bill proposes to cut development assistance by more than a billion dollars, $1.4 billion. It's a 30% cut. And the Senate bill only cuts $390 million. So it's only 10% cut from the Senate. But both the House and the Senate are cutting back on funding for development assistance at the very time that developing countries and indeed rich countries around the world are facing the climate emergency and have enormous demands for you know health and education responding to disasters, all the development challenges that people around the world are facing. So there's no money for climate action from the Republicans, very little being proposed for, for development assistance. You will be pleased to know, however, that both the House and the Senate have agreed to give another $100, $400 million to the Countering People's Republic of China Influence Fund. So there is a 23% increase in funding for countering PRC influence, but not for climate action. Do they spell out what that means? Well, they're worried that China's um, having some success in developing countries around the world, in Africa, across Southeast Asia, and indeed in some Pacific countries. How are they going to counter it? Through all sorts of mechanisms, um, soft power and hard power. Let us remember, of course, that there's not that many cuts to the budget for the Pentagon, um, and we're seeing significant funding across the region, particularly in the northern Pacific, for um, US military buildup in Hawaii and Guam. In Guam, for example, which is the Micronesian uh, US territory, uh, um, closest really to the uh, um, hotspots of the South China Sea, the US has announced that they're going to build a uh, missile defense system. About a third of the land area of Guam and the harbor, APRA Harbor, beautiful deep water naval harbor, um, hosts US military bases. Um, the Naval Air Station, Anderson Air Force Base, and uh, the APRA Harbor uh, Naval Base. To protect those US military assets, the US is now proposing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars building a missile defense system, given that those military bases are likely to be targeted by China in any armed conflict that escalates, uh, whether around Taiwan or World War Three or whatever's facing us down the road. This is a a real concern, obviously, for the Chamorro people, the indigenous uh, people of Guam, who um, you know have the right to self-determination but certainly are not getting it under US colonial policy. The budget is also looking at money for what they call compacts of free association for three other US uh, dependencies in the uh, Northern Pacific, the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Republic of Palau, these also all were part of a trust territory established after the Second World War, administered by the United States, now independent countries with their own parliaments and presidents. But the U.S. has uh, influence over defense and foreign policy through these compacts, these treaties on um, free association. And the Biden administration wants uh, $7.1 billion to um, increase funding for the compacts, which are due to run out uh, uh, later this year. That's been agreed for FSM and um, Palau. They've signed off on a proposed uh, funding package. Still hasn't got through Congress, of course. Um, but the Marshall Islands is actually asking for more money than has been put on the table because of the need to clean up the legacies of 67 
atomic and hydrogen bomb tests conducted at Bikini and Eniwetok atolls in the Marshalls uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. A tribunal, the Nuclear Claims Tribunal, allocated $2.6 billion in rulings saying that there'd been damage to both property and to health for people from uh, uh, the northern atolls, especially like Rongelak, Uterik and others that were irradiated by the fallout from US atmospheric nuclear testing many decades ago. That money still hasn't been paid, even though the marshals back in 2000 asked the US Congress to allocate more funding for it. And the marshals is playing chicken with the uh, Biden administration at the moment, suggesting that they may be reluctant to sign on to a new compact of free association unless the US ups its offer for um, funding uh, for cleanup, compensation and reparations for the legacies of nuclear testing. And this is an issue that's relevant to Australia too. The 15th of October this year is the anniversary of the Totem nuclear test. That's the first uh, British atomic test conducted on the Australian mainland. They did uh, tests at um, Montebello Islands in 1952, uh, 1953, 15th of October, and then again the 27th of October. The British conducted atomic tests at uh, Emu Field. Wonderful book by Elizabeth Tynan tells the sad and sordid history of British testing. And once again, the issue of cleanup, of compensation, of reparations is uh, uh, still lingering. And this is the 70th anniversary of those British nuclear tests in Australia. Um, The Pacific's still living with nuclear legacies. As you can imagine, Prime Minister Albanese's proposal uh, that Australia will build a nuclear industry by nuclear submarines will in fact fund the Americans you know, shipbuilding capacity and base American submarines in Western Australia, which is really what's about to happen, doesn't go down too well in a region that still hasn't had the last lot cleaned up. Well, the people of Okinawa aren't too happy either. They have been fighting against the bases in Japan for many years. There was talk a few years ago about shifting some of them to Guam. Did that happen? That's certainly happening. Um, It's taken a long time because of long-time resistance in Okinawa over a massive U.S. military presence and indeed a series of uh, assaults, rapes, uh, other incidents, misadventure by U.S. Marines based in Okinawa, um, the theft of land, the problems of noise, of unexploded ordnance, of toxics from the military bases, particularly uh, in Okinawa. There's been enormous pressure to relocate. Over the last decade, the U.S. has been building up uh, the capacity for um, Guam to take more Uh, Marines. Originally, there was talk of bringing 8,000 Marines, U.S. Marines and their families to Guam. Now, it's a pretty small island and they've built Camp Blas, which is a new military base for the uh, U.S. Marines on Guam. But even so, they couldn't take the full 8,000 and they're proposing maybe 5,000 odd. The figures are a bit rubbery. The other ones, guess where they're based? In Australia. Uh, Sorry, not based. They rotate shall we say, through the Northern Territory. So US Marines are constantly on rotation through uh, facilities in the Northern Territory. And so because of the citizen pressure in Okinawa to get rid of US militarization, they're redeploying to more friendly territory, the US Territory, obviously, under control of uh, Washington, D.C. And some might say Australia under control of Washington, D.C. when you look at what's happening with AUKUS. The same with um, B-52 bombers, you know, the United States rotates uh, B-52H Strato forces through Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. Now, these are uh, many of them are nuclear capable, capable of carrying nuclear weapons. Uh, the U.S. refuses to confirm or deny 
whether those um, B-52 bombers are actually armed with nuclear weapons when they are on rotation, flying in for a few months to be based in Guam and then flying out again. The same thing, however, is happening at Tyndall Air Base in the Northern Territory, where B-52s are on constant rotation. And uh, currently, um, under the Albanese government, there's uh, significant budgetary allocations from the US and Australia to build uh, increased uh, infrastructure and facilities for uh, those B-52s operating out of uh, northern Australia. Um, so fuel, uh, landing strips, improving the apron around the, the hangars and all those sorts of things. Um, that sort of work has been proposed to expand Tyndall. And really, that's going to mean that uh, Australia will be stationing, effectively, B-52H bombers, nuclear-capable, many of them, out of the Northern Territory. Now, the perception of the Chinese for that is pretty understandable. That just integrates us even further than we are already into U.S. warfighting strategies. It also raises eyebrows in the Pacific because Australia is a signatory to the um, Treaty of Rarotonga, the treaty creating a South Pacific nuclear-free zone. You know, you're not supposed to have nuclear weapons on your soil if you're a signatory to the, the Rarotonga Treaty. Are the B-52s that are nuclear capable, capable of carrying nuclear arms? Are they actually carrying them? We don't know. The US won't say. Will the Albanese government ask? Good opportunity. He was meeting with Joe Biden pretty soon. This is the sort of topic that possibly could be discussed. You talked about partial success of citizens' pressure in Okinawa. There's plenty of citizen pressure in Guam. Yeah, there's strong sentiment. Um, one of the problems is that uh, because it's a U.S. colony, a U.S. territory, they don't have effective representation in the U.S. government. Guam, for example, has um, a member of the U.S. Congress, the House of Reps, but it's a non-voting position. So although they can sit on committees in the U.S. Congress, they don't have a vote. Similarly, uh, uh, people in Guam can hold a straw poll for the uh, U.S. presidency, but their votes don't count towards the election of the president. So whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, uh, who seem to be the leading candidates for the 2024 presidential elections, people in Guam, because it's a US territory, not an independent country, don't have their votes counted towards the, uh, the presidency. Let's turn back to Japan and the release of the radioactive water from the failed nuclear power plant. It's begun but there's still a lot of opposition, and I imagine that opposition will last for quite a while. There's great anger across the Pacific Islands about this question. Japanese company TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, has been using water to uh, cool the melted-down fuel rods, um, radioactive mess that's left at the base of the Fukushima reactor that was hit by the tsunami and earthquake in 2011. They've been storing that water in giant tanks at the uh, reactor site in Fukushima. TEPCO's broke. They're in big, big trouble. They've already spent about $160 billion US uh, in cleanup around uh, Fukushima. That's only a third of the way, some say half the way through the, the cleanup process. They're going to have to spend billions and billions and billions more dollars cleaning up this reactor over coming years. So they're looking for the cheapest and easiest way to get rid of more than 1.3 million tonnes of water that's been contaminated by radioactive isotopes. So the plan is they'll pump it into the ocean, and indeed, as you say, they've begun. This is water that's been put through a treatment system called ALPS. It's a liquid processing system that theoretically uh, strains out 
all of the radioactive isotopes. And we're talking serious stuff. We're talking about strontium. We're talking about cesium-137. We're talking about a whole range of isotopes that can kill you, uh, give you cancer. The Japanese government and the International Atomic Energy Agency have done a series of studies arguing that the ALPS system will filter this water before it's pumped out into the Pacific and only uh, levels, small levels of tritium will go into the ocean. And according to you know drinking water standards, a bit of tritium uh, allegedly is not bad for you. Well, there's no safe level for any radiation, but let's pass that by for the moment. The real problem, though, is this is going to go on for 30 years. Not a lot of people in Japan and, and pretty few in the Pacific have faith that over the next three decades, the Japanese government and TEPCO are going to efficiently and effectively screen and filter the water that they are pumping straight out into the Pacific Ocean. They could do other things with the tritium-laden water. They can make concrete with it. They could put it elsewhere, but that's much more expensive. So they're taking the quickest and cheapest way to get rid of a problem that's been building up um, for more than a decade. You know, the IAEA has said that they believe that there's uh, no significant radiological risk. They haven't officially endorsed or approved Japan's ocean dumping program. They just say that it's a big problem. I think it's more an engineering problem than simply a, a radiation protection problem. Do you have faith that the Japanese government and TEPCO, who are broke, and owe the TEPCO owes $160 billion back to the government that they um, have loaned, haven't been able to start the repayments yet, are they going to keep this system running effectively for three decades to stop other isotopes slipping through the ALPS system and being pumped out into the Pacific. Um, Neighbouring countries like China, Korea and others are, are hot up in arms. Many Pacific Island countries, so reliant on fisheries, are furious. Um, a few leaders have been uh, wooed by large sums of Japanese aid. I'm sorry it's that crude. Um, one or two leaders have, have said, well, OK, we trust the science. But there's a lot of anger around the Pacific and I think it'll be quite a hot issue uh, when the forum leaders meet in uh, Rarotonga, Cook Islands, um, in uh, November this year. Well, just finally, Nick, a reaction from the nuclear power industry or some of them saying, well, this release happens all the time from nuclear power plants. What are you worried about? That's just, that's just nonsense. There's a difference between cooling water, so conventional nuclear reactors have cooling systems to uh, slow down the heat that's generated by the, the nuclear reaction. Um, but those are in encased systems. Therefore, yes, they have you know, uh, isotopes like tritium and so on. The problem with the water being used at Fukushima is the whole containment system broke down internally and this water has been used to stop the melted fuel rods from uh, getting to criticality. Um, this is not a normal operation of a conventional nuclear reactor that releases cooling water from a, an enclosed system into waterways. And that certainly does happen. This is a reactor that's completely broken and a company that's desperately trying to um, safely clean up the fact that their fuel rods have all melted um, and are still releasing incredible amounts of energy that's hazardous to both humans and the environment. The Fukushima case is nowhere comparable to the normal operations of a conventional nuclear reactor. There's a lot of nonsense talked around nuclear power at the moment. You know, the coalition are talking about building 71 small uh, modular reactors at coal-fired power stations around Australia to replace the coal. There are no commercially operating 
small modular reactors in the Western world as we speak. Um, so this is Never Neverland stuff, and it's just a distraction from the coal and fossil fuel companies who are wanting to expand operations and the presentation, oh, there's a tech fix where we can just go nuclear to solve the problem, is basically a classic delay, diversion, deny response to the need to reduce coal, oil, gas production and consumption in Australia. Another problem, surely, is that journalists aren't equipped with the knowledge to challenge when these statements are made. Well, sorry, it's not rocket science. I mean, you can look up, there's this wonderful thing called Google, and if you look up the WSIR uh, annual nuclear survey, every year there's a nuclear survey that details what reactors are in operation, what reactors are being closed down, what reactors are in the pipeline, what research has been done. All of that stuff's available with a quick, quick click on the Google. You'll find that, in fact, the amount of energy being generated by nuclear power is in the decline. Many conventional nuclear reactors, large nuclear reactors, were built during the 1960s and 70s. That's you know, 50 years ago. They're coming to the end of their operational life, and many are being retired. The other problem is that newer generation nuclear reactors across the Western world, certainly China's expanding its nuclear fleet, but many other countries are trying to build more modern, more technologically efficient nuclear reactors, but pretty much all of them are way over budget and way over time schedules. So anyone who hopes that nuclear is going to save us from the adverse effects of climate change has got rocks in their head. And the very fact that it's people like Ted O'Brien and Barnaby Joyce who are promoting this nonsense, <laughs> you know, think about their track record on other issues and you realise nukes ain't the solution to the current crisis that we face around the climate emergency. Thank you as always, Jan. Look forward to speaking again. Absolutely, and of course that was Nick McClellan. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Journalist and human rights activist Peter Murphy recently travelled to Zimbabwe in South Africa. He was representing the Australian-based Zimbabwe Information Centre. When I spoke with Peter, I asked him first when and how his long association with Zimbabwe began. Uh, Jan, it goes way back to um, 1975, I think, when I was a student activist and through the Australian Union of Students and I think through the Communist Party, we, we raised funds for ZANU and ZAPU as part of the broader anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, and ZANU and ZAPU were the main liberation fighting units in uh, Zimbabwe. There was the ANC in South Africa and SWAPO in Namibia. So, yeah, it's, it's a really long time. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, the independence came in 1980 in Zimbabwe and Mugabe and ZANU-PF uh, was the ruling party and there were problems pretty well straight away. 
you know, there was always an abiding uh, concern about Australia's engagement with uh, Zimbabwe and Southern Africa and, and our own role as political activists in following through on what we'd done. So I always felt a bit guilty about Mugabe. We started up the Zimbabwe Information Centre in the year 1999 in uh, response to a request from a you know, long-time Zimbabwean activist, Sekai Holland, uh, who'd been here in Australia in the 70s in the anti-apartheid movement. And what will you be able to do in those later years? Well, it was uh, broadly uh, a sort of solidarity relationship we were committed to. So the aims of Zimbabwe Information Centre were to develop the friendship between the two peoples as a whole, specifically to support uh, the democratic uh, movement in Zimbabwe and support gender equality and ecological sustainability. So it was pretty... uh, low-key, but the actual context in Zimbabwe was really very dramatic with a sort of heightened repression from Mugabe as uh, president, a growing opposition movement outside of the ZANU-PF framework to his dictatorship, really. So it it was a movement for democratic change. So in practice, we supported the MDC at election times and in providing information to the Australian government and the public about it and uh, and also in community level support you know for there were so many displaced people very poor people um, in Zimbabwe at the time because of the chaotic uh, so-called land reform movement or land grabbing that um, Mugabe initiated in 2000 and and there was a very very severe AIDS pandemic impact. Large numbers of people were dying from AIDS and there were a lot of children left orphaned and so on. And that's the problem, isn't Even if you get rid of a dictator, the legacy is left behind. Well, I think, uh, you know, it took till 2017, November 2017, for Mugabe to be deposed and he died a couple of years later. So, you know, it was... um, I think there's big, has been a big change in Zimbabwe because of that. So the uh, really vicious um, uh, use of violence and uh, intimidation by uh, ZANU-PF people or, or the government agencies themselves has stopped, really stopped pretty well straight away. There's uh, you know, a big uh, rejigging of everything happened in politics because the wife of um, Robert Mugabe, her name is Grace Mugabe, really triggered that crisis in 2017 by uh, moving to uh, replace the vice president, who's Emerson Manangagwa, who's now the president, um, like to arrest him, probably to kill him. And uh, the broader system of ZANU-PF and the military just wouldn't accept such a, such a thing. So after 2017, Grace Mugabe started to finance the opposition. So, you know, the MDC by then had broken up into five or six parts, it had uh, really lost its way as a sort of broad movement and corrupted, you know, the, the leader that emerged, uh, Nelson Chamisa, he had already made his deal with the Mugabe's back in about 2008-9. And so it's, it's really funny or sad you know, to say that everything switched and uh, if, you know, there's lots of problems with all the political forces in Zimbabwe, but broadly the, the current government is is quite an improvement on uh, Mugabe's time and the opposition is, a, is much taken over by the Mugabe way of doing things. So um, that's the current situation really. 
And of course, Grace had plenty of resources to fund that destabilisation. Yeah, I mean, the Mugabe family had plundered the place for decades. And it's, uh, of course, hard to know the total amount that was taken, but I, I would think that $10 billion US plus would be a fairly modest estimation. And um, yes, it's an enormous amount of money to wield in, in a tiny economy like Zimbabwe's. You know, Australia, for instance, has a GDP of $1.7,000 billion dollars. Zimbabwe has 28 billion. So she's she's probably got more than assets worth more than half of the annual income of the country. So, you know, it's it's really a very big power and I think that's been used really recklessly in this last 5 years or so. You mentioned Australia's role in Zimbabwe over the years. What has it been and what is it now? Yeah, so back in the uh, 70s, actually this is the 50th anniversary of the visit to Australia by Herbert Chitepo and, and another important leader, Edison Fogbo, to introduce the face you know, of the ZANU uh, and the liberation struggle to Australia, you know, meet the Whitlam government and talk to them. And so you, if you recall, the Whitlam government uh, was very strongly opposed to apartheid and fitted the uh, liberation struggles in, in all of Southern Africa into that framework. And so uh, at that time, the Whitlam government offered non-lethal support to the liberation struggle in Zimbabwe, you know, providing boots, uh, clothing, medicine, and so on. So this was a really quite alarming to the conservative forces in Australia who were you know, very much supporting apartheid and Ian Smith's uh, unilateral um, uh, declaration of independence for Rhodesia. So um, it was very controversial. But uh, Malcolm Fraser, who, who emerged in 75 as the you know, leader of the Liberal Party and Prime Minister at the end of that year, um, he uh, was an anti-racist himself. And so there was a sort of a common ground there. And he maintained uh, broadly uh, Labor's approach to opposing apartheid, not as vigorously as Labor did, of course, but he, he didn't really deeply disagree with it. So uh, when 1980 came along, so five years later, 79, there was a ceasefire in the fighting in Zimbabwe. And then there was a, a negotiation taking place in, in London or in UK called the Lancaster House Negotiations. And Fraser went to that. Australia played quite a role as part of the Commonwealth in framing uh, a transitional constitution for uh, uh, independent Zimbabwe with uh, democratic rule. And uh, he personally, I think, championed Robert Mugabe. I think the British intelligence and establishment had decided that they could work with Mugabe. And so uh, Australia supported Mugabe. So it's another quite a just like the, the left, you know, in a way the Fraser grouping also supported Mugabe and uh, I think um, enthusiastically supported the incoming government. You know, like Australia recruited teachers, flew them, I think teachers and nurses flew them into Zimbabwe. Qantas had set up a direct flight into Harare and uh, there was quite a, you know, keen, enthusiastic effort at the sort of reconstruction of the country following the end of the, the fighting. So there you go. It's it's quite strong. And it, up to 
take let's go up to 2000 and uh, when when all the trouble really broke out that year in in Zimbabwe uh, the Australian government was the Howard government and uh, after a couple of years there was there was a, an election 2002 and uh, it was uh, ruled by the Commonwealth Observer Mission not to be free and fair. And John Howard uh, attended the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Nigeria, in Abuja, and uh, stated that the election that had taken place in Zimbabwe wasn't free and fair. And that implied that uh, their membership, Zimbabwe's membership of the Commonwealth would have to be suspended or expelled. And Mugabe uh, preempted that decision by just resigning Zimbabwe from the Commonwealth. And that's still the situation today. I think it's uh, 21 years later. So um, in the following few years, more and more violent actions took place from the Mugabe side against people in the opposition. And in 2005, there was a big uh, operation to punish voters in the urban areas who were voting for MDC by demolishing their uh, houses. So whole areas of Harare and uh, parts of Bulawayo and other towns were bulldozed. There was about half a million people displaced. The UN sent in a special investigator who declared it a crime against humanity and uh, we agitated in Australia for the government to take much more decisive action about this. And uh, Alexander Downer was the foreign minister. He implemented the sanctions against key uh, Zona PF figures by expelling their children from Australia. They were, they were, their kids were, were here, you know, with rolling in money and enrolled at universities and having a really notorious party life, I suppose. So um, they were all, all their visas were cancelled. They were put on a plane and sent back to Harare. So uh, that's something that the uh, Howard government did. And uh, then... Um, in 2007, 2008, we had the Labor government back with Kevin Rudd. And Kevin Rudd and uh, Julie Bishop had both been election observers in that Commonwealth uh, mission in 2002. And so they actually had a, both of them uh, an emotional connection to Zimbabwe and an appreciation of the situation that you know really was, was rare in, in Australian politics. So, you know, they continued to pay attention in... in uh, in the Labor government period and then in the following Abbott government period. So, yeah, things staggered on, as I said, to 2017 and that drama that happened in November when uh, Mugabe was deposed by the military. And uh, in the following election in 2018, it was, um, you know, a remarkably different election to the, the worst one I saw, which was in 2008. Many, many people were killed and many people were tortured. Um, I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of people and thousands were displaced in 2008. In 2018, there was some violence in the election. Um, there there was a hand grenade thrown at uh, Manangagwa's campaign tent at, at a rally and uh, some people were injured and killed in that, that blast, but not him. And um, I would say that that came from the Mugabe side, the hand grenade. Uh, and then you know, the election proceeded and the counting was underway, but uh, the opposition led by Nelson Chamisa was saying that the election was rigged and they, they organised a, a sort of mass attack on the Electoral Commission and tried to burn it down and like destroy all the ballot papers. In the, in the end, the street fighting was stopped when the army was called out and they opened fire and I think they killed at least six people and wounded maybe 18 more, some some 
significant number like that anyway. It was a horrific way for this whole thing to end and it greatly discredited the election, which had been, I think, credible up till then. Yeah, since then, I think we've really seen a, a sort of convergence of uh, uh, US-inspired uh, destabilisation of Manangagwa's government in uh, concert with Grace Mugabe's group, uh, a, a small rump from the ZANU-PF of Robert Mugabe and and uh, Nelson Chamisa's uh, opposition group, which was then called MDC and now is called CCC. Yeah, it's been a period of permanent sort of media warfare trying to say that Manangagwa's government is as is, is bad as or worse than the Mugabe period um, without any uh, really substantiation of the allegations, but it's been very sustained and uh, I think it has you know, had an impact on maintaining the isolation of Zimbabwe from the international community, you know, which should have ended with the ending of the uh, Mugabe dictatorship. Yeah, this time there was an election just in, in August, on August 23, and uh, I and another ZIC uh, member, Graham Chuck, arrived there in, on September 7, so just a couple of weeks later. And uh, the election this time had been just remarkably peaceful. There were uh, allegations of massive violence, but then again, no evidence. And really what I found from talking to people myself was that four different cities I was in, everybody said that, uh, that I talked to said that there was no violence. It was really peaceful and it was really peaceful after the election as well. I, I think that the election, which did return Manangagwa's government by, I think, a margin of roughly 52% to 44% for Chamisa, you know, was a credible election. That's still not really settled because of all of these allegations that are continually being made. But the international observer missions which were present, there were four, should be giving their reports within a little while. And in any case, uh, the opposition didn't contest the election in the Constitutional Court, which is the Electoral Court of Appeal. And the inauguration has happened and so and the cabinet's been announced. So I think I think that the country's moving past the election. But we'll see. We'll see what the detail is from the observer missions. What's in it for the US getting involved? It's really the fact that both Mugabe's government and Manangagwa's maintain a dialogue with China and Russia. So it's a sort of geopolitical thing. During the Trump presidency, in particular, there was for a long time not even an assistant secretary of state for Africa. So there was really very little direction to the diplomats and uh, agencies working in Africa, the US ones, and they were left to their own devices. I think conventional thinking is, you know, you oppose the the Russians and the Chinese. And since this uh, government, which they really had a lot of contempt for, was talking to them or dealing with them or letting investments come from them, then, you know, we should bring the government down. So that's why it's very uh, revealing, I think, that... uh, allegations. The policy against Mugabe's uh, regime was about human rights. That changes and there's a more supportive regime in terms of human rights, but the same policy applies of destabilising it. And that's really because I think human rights is not seriously the concern of the United States government and establishment and uh, the rivalry with China and Russia is, is much more what's on their mind. And what was the platform for the new government? To me, uh, Jan, 
neither the government nor the opposition have very clear or credible programs they put to the people. But for what it's worth, the government's program is to try to achieve the sustainable development goals set by the UN for 2030 to make sure all parts of the community are uplifted in the effort that they make. And for the opposition, it's sort of even less specific, but more grandiose claims that they'll once, you know, Manangag was gone and Chamisa is in, there'll be a brilliant, effective and uh, competent government and country will be wealthy. For us in Australia, it's it's not the way we would do politics, but that's what it was there. And what are the main issues? Is it housing, education? And I'd imagine one of the main things is encouraging the people who left over all those years to come back. Yes, I think that there's always that hope, but uh, I think really the... Uh, there's millions of Zimbabweans uh, outside the country, mainly in uh, southern Africa, but also in many parts of the world, including Australia, who are sending remittances back. And they're worth, you know, one billion plus every year. So they're really a significant uh, support to the ordinary people. I think that if there was some sort of uh, new momentum in economic activity in Zimbabwe, there would be people coming back. But I think it's we're really talking about a transitional thing and those remittances will remain very important to the government. So they won't really, you know, have a high beat, you know, impact campaign for people to return. You know, going back to your basic question, what are the real issues for the people? You know, hunger is, is, is an issue, Jan. You know, the people have so little money that feeding themselves is difficult. I'm sure there's some overweight people I saw, but most people were pretty thin. Employment is largely in the informal sector. There's a, there's a lot of actual thinking and talking and efforts being made to try to you know, expand the formal sector and bring more people into more, less precarious circumstances in employment. You know, the, there's in sort of broader things like the health system and the education system. <clears throat> they might have once been good, 30 or 40 years ago, but they're really, really degraded. Improving the wages of those workers in those sectors, it's a little bit like what we hear in Australia, um, but um, you know the wages are, are very low. And if, uh, as happened in the months before the election, the local currency collapses by a big amount, you know the, the actual buying power of people just evaporates. That's why the hunger's there. Stabilising the currency and developing a, a sort of more stable engagement with the international financial system and more broadly the international community would really help everybody. We in Zimbabwe Information Centre in particular, we have launched a campaign against the residual sanctions that Australia is imposing on a number of people in Zimbabwe. Not so much because saying that five people in Zimbabwe shouldn't have a bank account in Australia makes any difference. But the problem is that the so-called targeted sanctions, which started you know, in 2002, have morphed into a very general uh, isolation of Zimbabwe's economy because two US banks were found to have enabled transactions with uh, sanctioned individuals under the US list about 10 years ago. And as a result, the US banking system uh, applied a risk management uh, policy there and just uh, cancelled all 
banking relationships with Zimbabwe. Say you're on your computer and you want to buy some software, like a word processing software or something else. When you get to the point of paying for it with your credit card, the credit card is not accepted. There's a myriad of tedious and, and really difficult things happening in the country because these sanctions exist in the way they do. And of course, Mugabe's regime is gone. The new government, these people deposed Mugabe. So why are they also the victim of these sanctions? So that's an element we, we want to see changed and it would it would help. Australia took that step and encouraged the US, UK and European Union to do the same. Yes, yeah, so there's there's this sort of more general macro level at which economic help can be given to the country. You know, even if they still have a very serious problem paying their debt to the IMF and World Bank, all of this, all of this other stuff shouldn't be there. And maybe they can be able to renegotiate those deals with the um, IMF and World Bank as well. That would loosen up the situation to enable some sort of stimulus to happen to the economy. You know, Zimbabwe is very rich in uh, minerals and it's also a fairly um, rich agricultural potential country. So Mugabe destroyed the agricultural potential um, and it's only coming somewhere back towards what it was in this last couple of years under Nanangagwa. There's significant investments happening in the mineral sector, especially around, just like we have in Australia, around lithium and other minerals related to the renewable energy transition the world has to make. So there's there's really a reason why um, investment should happen in Zimbabwe and it could be managed properly in Zimbabwe and therefore, you know, the international uh, economy should open itself to engagement with Zimbabwe. Does the Australian government have representation in Zimbabwe and are Australian mining companies looking to work there as well? Australian mining companies are in Zimbabwe. Have been for a long time, uh, all through this Mugabe period. BHP is one of them. Rio Tinto is another, um, but there are some smaller ones. There's one involved in a major new petroleum project called Invictus. I don't really, uh, you know, sympathise with new uh, petroleum projects, but that's that's another one. And and there are some other ones who I've heard about operating uh, in a good way in the community as well as in their actual operation. And the, we, Australia has an embassy in uh, Zimbabwe. The, the current um, ambassador is a woman called Manoli Pereira. She seems to have played a very good role, I think, in this recent election period in, in uh, helping to get a Commonwealth observer mission into the country, even though uh, Zimbabwe is not a member of the Commonwealth. That, I hope, will pay off uh, in the sense that there'll be reporting, a proper reporting going back to the Commonwealth countries about Zimbabwe, which wants to rejoin the Commonwealth. And I hope that that, that happens. You know, during the last period, you know, of the coalition government, there was a massive cut in, in you know, Australia's overseas aid program, and especially in Africa, a sort of retreat at the diplomatic level, you know, less and less diplomats were there. But we maintain the embassy in uh, Zimbabwe and also uh, High Commission in South Africa and I think they're very high priorities for Australia that I'd be very surprised if there's any you know reduction in that effort coming from the uh, uh, Albanese government uh, and in fact uh, there should be a proper a modest but but good expansion in Australia's aid effort in Africa and coming now as well. And Peter Murphy is a member of the Zimbabwe Information Centre.
based here in Australia. We have a right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think uh, we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. Earlier on the program, we heard from Dr. Tim Anderson, former senior lecturer at Sydney University, talking about the destruction of Libya, which followed the murder of Colonel Gaddafi, whose government had lifted the people of Libya out of poverty, provided education, health, housing and security, as well as supporting African nations to the south and providing employment for many from those countries a model for other African nations to follow. In the eyes of the US, definitely a government which had to be brought down with the resulting chaos and destruction, which is evident to this day. That was in 2011. But decades before, another government also had to be extinguished. The year was 1973, when the socialist government of Chile's Salvador Allende was overthrown by a CIA sponsored coup, which saw the establishment of General Augusto Pinochet. As US National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger warned, was its insidious model effect that would be emulated by other nation states. Today, academic at RMIT University and writer Inoy Kampmark looks back at the events 50 years ago in Chile. Not only the CIO involvement, but Australian special role in destroying a democracy. First, Pinoy, we don't hear a great deal about the life and work of Salvador Allende, who was elected the 28th president of Chile. Not exactly a radical. Well, no, he wasn't a radical in the traditional sense of what one might regard a radical. But what was interesting was that he was perceived to be a radical by conservative forces and the, the tragic legacy the blood-spattered legacy of Latin American politics is that anyone who remotely suggested a redistribution of wealth or um, distribution certainly to the peasantry or the poorer classes was always going to be tainted with the accusation that he was a radical socialist or communist. And this is where Salvador Allende was seen to be a dangerous figure, and certainly not just within uh, the conservative branches of Chilean politics, but also broadly in Latin America and certainly by the United States because he was seen, and uh, you know, Henry Kissinger is very much on record, both publicly and through correspondence uh, within the White House, but also to other um, uh, officials 
in the Nixon administration, he was very much worried that the Allende Allende's coming to power would uh, have what he called an insidious model effect because it would encourage other Latin American countries to pursue uh, this more egalitarian distributive program. And of course, there was also the link, and this is where the accusation of radicalism was enforced, kept being reiterated, There was because Allende had very good ties with Fidel Castro, and so that was another aspect of it that aggravated the situation. And what was he able to achieve in those few short years that he was in power? Well, it was very tumultuous. Uh, his time in office was a very tumultuous one. He did, for example, have a, you know, during this, certainly in the initial period of his rule, he did manage to secure various agrarian reforms, for example, and the redistributive agenda there towards uh, the Chilean peasantry and so forth, much to the agitation and irritation of the business corporate classes and so forth. But he did certainly succeed in that. He was focused on education. He was focused on essentially, a, 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 call it a socialist agenda um, that was doing quite well. But then, and this is where the, the darkness set in, because very early on, in, right from the outset of Allende's election, there was already an effort being made and hatched by the likes of the Central Intelligence Agency. And yes, and this is where the Australian role, which is almost virtually un, unknown uh, in many circles, but it is a very interesting one, was played, where Australian agents played a disruptive role in essentially creating economic trouble, logistical troubles with Allende's policies. So what happened was uh, the unions went on strike. They were encouraged. There, were, there was covert funding that was given to various party groups by the United States, funneled through CIA sources. And the idea was to create essentially economic mayhem. So the economic program of Allende was then made to look devastating and uh, awful as a socialist experiment, when in actual fact, it was being impaired and hampered from the outside. Tell me some more about the Australian connection. And I remember a few years ago reading that Alan Bond had control of a telephone company. How significant was that? Well, the Australian role is quite interesting because there is, yes, this, be, it, be it, say, telecommunications and more you know, specifically given that it is the, you know, of course, the anniversary, September 11th. What is so shocking about it to me has been the, the fact that there has been this uh, dovetail effect of you of Australian policy essentially having very little role otherwise to play in Latin America. But at the behest of the CIA, there was a request that was made and you know, to Billy McMahon had yet to become the prime minister. It was just before that. Um, before he became prime minister, he was still foreign minister. And the CIA actually suggested, would Australia like to help out in its disruptive effort against Allende's government? And so they, they did set up, actually, the ASIS, the, the strategic, the external secret intelligence service, ended up setting up a station in Santiago itself, so right in the heart of Chilean power. What is interesting is that over the years, we've started to get a real sense about the nature of what, what was being done. Uh, Clinton Fernandez, uh, who himself was a former you know, individual working in the Australian intelligence community, has been trying to dig up this material. Uh, and of course, being fought essentially all the way by the National Archives and by Australian officials because they don't want to see really what Australia was supposedly doing. 
and it is very clear that the station you know had at least uh, several three possibly more individual agents who were performing um, acts of disruption and so forth the liaising with the CIA although it was interesting it, judging from what Fernandez has found it wasn't always a very happy relationship. They didn't seem to always get on with their CIA counterparts. Just wondering why Australia, though, plenty of European countries, the US could have called on to do their dirty work. It is. It raises a very good question, Jan, and I think it's a very important question to ask because ASIS itself, in one of its assessments, made the remark that Australia had no interest, in, no national interest to be in Chile. There was no connection you know, between Canberra's interests, uh, you know, in the immediate proximity with the Pacific and certainly in the context, even given the Cold War context, there was no reason why Australia should be involved. And notwithstanding that, I think it, it goes to show back to this uh, in, insidious, uh, problematic, um, servile relationship that Australia has had with the United States over the years. We have to remember, of course, during the context of the Vietnam War, Australia bent over backwards to supply material as well and, and um, you know, men and material to Vietnam, the Vietnam War. Harold Hulse and all the way with LBJ and these particular comments uh, fed in very much into the atmosphere of the time. And Sir McMahon himself you know, also was very much of that mindset uh, to try to see what they could do to help their U.S. allies. So it didn't matter that Australia had very little situational context about why on earth they should participate in Latin American matters. As you rightly say, they had, you know, more than willing allies in the Americas itself. This is the United States to perform their dirty work, as in fact was done through such insidious, such grotesque and vicious programs such as Operation Condor. But bizarrely enough, and I think this is what is such a sad reflection on the U.S.-Australian relationship, is that it's been generally servile. It's been generally a case of performing uh, the bidding of Uncle Sam in, in, in ways of such a bizarre nature. And this, the Chilean example is but one. You know, the number of times Australian soldiers have been essentially outsourced or agents, I'm almost certain it's even more than that. But this is the sort of thing that came to light because digging has been done on it. Well, you've pointed out that the, the Liberal government was up to their ears in it. What about the ALP when they came to power? What were they doing? Now, this is a very interesting thing because, as I suppose with many things with the ALP and matters of national security, it was a bit, it was somewhat schizophrenic. On the one hand, we had Gough Whitlam being very troubled by the Santiago station. So the Santiago station, he did actually, more or less the moment he came to power, he started to, to say that uh, the station had to be closed down because it really was not something that he felt comfortable with in the context of destabilizing, you know, a sovereign power um, under the aegis of the sea directed by the CIA. Whitlam, uh, actually much against and disliked by the, the ASIS community, um, went against recommendations made by the ASIS top officials, including uh, William Robertson, that uh, they should still continue the station. So he then tried to implement the program of shutting it down, although doing so in a kind of a staggered fashion. And even by Whitlam's own admission, according to the material Fernandez's farm, even by Whitlam's own admission, there was a feeling that they should do so without agitating the CIA. They didn't want to tread on anybody's toes in the Central Intelligence Agency. 
So even then, there's this strange sort of trying to not break any eggs, as it were, in the process of trying to withdraw from Santiago. Well, once they've got rid of Allende, did those operatives from Australia stay there? No, by that particular point, essentially once the dirty work had been done, the Australian involvement had more or less uh, fallen, um, you know, more or less diminished. So in a sense, we don't really have a picture of what exactly was being done insofar as, well, there were logistical things in terms of updates. We do know that Australian officials there was uh, were sending material back to Canberra and also communicating with their U.S. counterparts. But in terms of direct, for example, sabotage or uh, direct actions of greater you know, destabilization, it's not very clear whether Australian agents did go that far. But certainly by the time the military made their move uh, in that devastating way in September 11th, 1973, the Australian role in it would not have been that significant because most of the damage had already been done. In the aftermath of 1973, I'm wondering what impact the Australian involvement might have had in the asylum seekers and refugees who poured out of Chile and many came to Australia. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and I think this, this was certainly significant in the sense that uh, by virtue of that, you know, and of course, it, it, one has to also acknowledge at the very least that uh, the um, <laughs> even though the the way the Fraser government came to power was, uh, you know, will always be known uh, rightly as notorious. But Fraser actually, at least uh, under his his steering, you know, the the acceptance of refugees in various guises, be it from, for example, the Vietnam War, or be it from uh, the hideous uh, nature about what happened in Chile, there was a, a more accommodating sense about those particular individuals coming into Australia. So. You know, I think it's also worth remembering that even that whether his thinking hadn't changed too much at that point, but Fraser was starting to show signs of being you know, a bit troubled by the closeness of the relationship with the United States, although it only took, of course, and after he left after he left office to start really shaping his uh, trenchant critique about Washington and the Australian U.S. relationship. Well, the refugees and asylum teams did come to Australia. I'm wondering how many intelligence agents and members of that regime of Pinochet actually ended up here in Australia as well. There is one well-known one, Adriana Rivas, but were there more? That's a good question. But uh, the, the only way we know about Rivas is because of digging that was done by you know, the SBS uh, and, and by a few others looking at the context, and she is, of course, uh, you know, on the list of being wanted for you know, having participated as an intelligence operative, um, um, certainly in connection with uh, five individuals, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so that's an example. So, but, but this, is a, this is what is not entirely clear whether there were others as well. You know, the reality has to be said that because uh, the Chilean government uh, was not averse to also spying on its diaspora and uh, murdering, in fact, left-wing activists um, in the context of, of their agenda. So the fact that this was happening is very troubling. And of course, it suggests that there were agents that were also operating. And I would have not be surprised that there were many others operating, or certainly several others operating in Australia under the cover of legitimacy. I'm just wondering if you can extrapolate what's happened in Chile with ACO and ACES to other countries where the right has forced the left out of power? 
Well, yes, so the, this is the dirty background or the dirty uh, playground, if you like, uh, regarding certainly Latin America, where you had essentially any regime or any government or administration that was deemed to be remotely reformist, remotely in terms of the context of pro-agrarian approach, for example, pro-peasantry and so forth. Any one of those instances, you would see the CIA hand in it and a destabilizing hand. And always, and we, we see it even to this day, in terms of the narrative, the narrative is always framed along the lines of anyone who would like to change matters, you know, reform matters, is seen as a socialist, tainted by the communist legacy. Uh, yes, uh, Chile did have, you know, Augusto Pinochet. You know, he was not perhaps the most savory character, but gee, economic times were good for those individuals who profited from it. And there's, of course, that's the darkness of it. Let's not forget that um, the same model was replicated throughout the notion of authoritarian regimes uh, that could be said to, that were problematic. But as Jean Fitzpatrick famously said, and she was U.S. ambassador to the U.N. for some time, she said it's far better to have an authoritarian right-wing government in power than, uh, uh, you know, a Marxist, uh, Leninist or leftist regime because the harm that they would do would be greater than the harm the authoritarian writers would do. Well, finally, Benoit, you've written that five decades later, a call by some Australian politicians for a formal acknowledgement of Australia's role in the destruction of a democracy. How likely is that? Well, unfortunately, I would say it's not likely at all. Uh, the, the Greens are certainly on record, so through um, Senator Jordan Steele-John, for example, to say that Australia should acknowledge its role and uh, issue an apology uh, for having engaged in the role, as I, as I say in the piece, about the destruction of Chilean democracy. But what I also mentioned in the piece is that when this has been brought up in Parliament, as it was, for example, in uh, 1983, the then Australian Attorney General, Gareth Evans, told the Senate, and I quote, there was no foundation for any suggestion that Australia in any way assisted any other country in any alleged operations or activity directed against the Allende regime. And at the time, the former Minister for Labour and Immigration from the Whitlam's time, Clyde Cameron, was absolutely shocked because he had, in a Four Corners program and in an open letter, revealed that there was significant Australian involvement in the enterprise. So whenever this has been raised, it's been stomped on. And to this day, for example, we don't know the full detail that was discussed in the Hope Inquiry that was, of course, into the Australia's intelligence services. So I'm not optimistic about an apology coming anytime soon because officially Australia has not played a role in it. Unofficially, we know it has, but no Australian government has officially acknowledged it. Well, it might be 50 years ago, but people are still digging pretty furiously. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's the likes of um, you know, individuals like Professor Fernandez and, and individuals you know, very much of that ilk that realise, or who realise rather, that there is a lot there. And, uh, you know, goodness knows you know, what other things we might find and you know, what role Australia has played in destabilising other regimes, which is something that, you know, is, you know, also at the behest of the United States. And that would be a very dark picture indeed. Thank you, Binoy. Thank you, John. Anytime. And Dr. Binoy Campmark is a lecturer at RMIT University here in Melbourne and also a contributor to Pearls and Irritations.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.